Welcome, my friends, to Birkegaard, the writings of Soren Kierkegaard. So we continue today to progress through this book, uh, Purity of Heart is the Will One Thing, uh, the writings of Soren Kierkegaard here. Uh, this is the second book that we've taken on, and uh, it's a challenging book. It's very convicting. Don't read this if you just want to have a light read at the beach. This is a, uh, this is a book you read if you want to ponder a bit. I don't think Soren wrote a whole lot of beach-worthy novels and uh, tomes in general. I don't know. Anyway, barriers to willing one thing, egocentric service of the good. So we've taken on this chapter. This is chapter six. Uh, Furthermore, it must be said that the man who wills the good and wills its victory out of a self-centered willfulness does not will one thing. He is double-minded. We'll cut to the chase here. I'll do my my personal biographical update here at the end. So if you guys aren't into that, you can just uh, turn it off and move on. So I've decided maybe that's a better way of doing this. I don't know. I'm just doing what seems to be right. I never went to school for this stuff. Who did? Who went to school for podcasting? There's probably going to be a podcasting major at universities here pretty soon. Major in uh, doing podcasts. It's a pretty cool. I love podcasts. If I didn't have podcasts, I don't know what I would do. Um, it's my primary way of learning these days. So here I am doing a podcast because I find it such a great medium and media. Here we go. So I'm going to read a little bit of what we read last week, just as a kind of to layer this over and to join from last week to this week. So you'll hear the familiar familiarity of what we read last week a bit. And then we'll go into some new uh, some new territory. In the eyes of the double-minded person, the good is one thing, its victory is another, and its victory through him may even be something else. Now it is indeed the case that eternally the good has always been victorious, but in time it is otherwise temporally. It may take a long time. The victory is slow. Its uncertainty is a slow measure of length again and again, The faithful servant's life ends, and it seemed at his death as if he had accomplished nothing for the good. Yet he was a faithful servant who willed the good in truth, and he was also loved by the good that prizes obedience more than the fat of the ram. So we talked about that last week, the fat of the ram idea, uh, which is a sacrifice that's made to cover disobedience. And we use Saul as an example from the Old Testament. God likes a good sacrifice, but he would prefer us to be obedient rather than uh, provide the sacrifice. Now, providing a sacrifice is a reality because we all sin. Uh, But Saul was uh, trying to uh, cover his deeds, uh, his misdeeds, by um, offering a fine sacrifice at the uh, at the end of his misdeeds in order to get God's favor. And God God is not fooled. God is not mocked. God understood what he was doing. Oh, man. Man thinks he's so wise and so slick. All right, so last, why does time exist? If the good eternally has always been victorious, why should it then creep slowly forward throughout the length of time or almost perish in time's slowness? Why should it fight laboriously uh, through that which makes time the longest uh, through uncertainty? Why should the solitary individual, he has that in quotes, he uses that term a lot in his books, uh, who sincerely will the good be so scattered, so separated, that they can scarcely call out to one another, scarcely catch sight of one another? 
I'm not sure Soren felt there was a lot of people that were on his side actively in Copenhagen and elsewhere that he could appeal to for support. I think he did feel like a solitary individual with not a whole lot of people who were backing him. But knowing his personality, he wouldn't have wanted a crowd to support him anyway. He was a he was a troubled guy in that way. He was very conflicted. Why should time hang like a weight upon them? Why should separation involve them in delay when it is so swiftly accomplished in eternity? Why was an immortal spirit placed in the world and in time just as the fish is drawn up out of the water and cast upon the beach? Well, that's an that's a illustration there for sure. Whoever talks in this questioning vein, and even if he says it amid groans, the utterance is the same, should be on his guard. For he scarcely knows by what spirit he is speaking. Alas, men often enough confuse, confuse impatience with humble, obedient enthusiasm. Impatience even lends itself to this confusion. When a man is active early and late for the sake of the good, storming about noisily and restlessly, hurling himself into time as a sick man throws himself down upon his bed, throwing off all consideration for himself as a sick man throws off his clothes, scornful of the world's reward when such a man makes a place among men, then the masses think that he himself imagines that he is inspired and yet he is at the other pole from that for he is double-minded and double-mindedness no more resembles inspiration than a whirlwind resembles uh, the steadiness of the standing wind so it is with impatience it is a kind of ill temper its root is already in the child because the child will not take time for things with the double-minded one, it is thus clear that time and eternity cannot rule in the same man. He cannot, he will not, understand the good's slowness, that out of mercy the good is slow, that out of love for the free person it will not use force. Now I'll continue reading more. I just want to provide a little bit of reflection on this this, uh, this part of um, the chapter. It's, uh, it's three pages remaining in this chapter, and then we're done uh, this specific chapter regarding the egocentric service of the good and uh, and how that's being double-minded. It is said by biblical uh, scholars and teachers that Jesus never ran. He never ran in the Bible. He was always intentional. Uh, I, I suppose there was times he chilled out with uh, the disciples. He wasn't always task-oriented. He was very focused, and the ultimate uh, goal, of course, was to get to Jerusalem and to be crucified and then raised on the third day. Uh, he was very intentional, but he was never rushing. He never rushed. He never just blew by people. Um, there were times he walked away from people, like when he started his ministry, uh, the people of Nazareth wanted to throw him off a cliff, and it says that he just walked through them and away from them. So there was kind of some supernatural event that empowered him to get through that raucous and dangerous crowd that was going to toss him off a, a cliff because he was claiming that he was the Messiah, which to Jews was um, a claim, obviously, of being God, uh, if they had read the scriptures carefully, and they didn't like that very much. Uh, so it's the old saying that a prophet is never honored in his hometown. Jesus was more than a prophet, but he was indeed a prophet. Prophet, priest, and king, as they say, all three roles combined in one, one individual, which is generally forbidden in the Bible. Uh, there's a reason why we have separation of powers 
in the United States between the various branches, and that's also true biblically, that it was rare for an uh, individual to have all three roles. Now, some did. David, David had, um, he wasn't a priest, but he was a prophet uh, to some degree, and he was also a king, of course. But you could have two out of three roles, but three out of three, that's dangerous when somebody wants to be prophet, priest, and king. Uh, that's not a good manifestation to have all that power in one person, of course. So we have that virtue uh, personified in the uh, Constitution. Executive, legislative, and judicial branches of government, same idea, separation of powers. Very Presbyterian, if you know how church polity operates. Uh, that's, that's somewhat Presbyterian in terms of its construction. I won't get too much into that today. I get really down a rabbit hole in that one. But Jesus never ran. There's no example of him running. He just walked very, uh, very circumspectly and took time for people and noticed things and uh, was interrupted and allowed children to come up and, you know, play with him and, uh, you know, healed sick people and caused people to walk that were lame and all that kind of stuff. And madmen came to their sanity. So I imagine it was pretty heady to be one of the disciples uh, with Jesus because you saw these supernatural events that verified his ministry. Uh, miracles in the Bible have a point. They're not just done for show. They're not just done to impress people like fireworks. Um, they're done to express a sign. And Jesus uh, brings peace. He brings healing. And he brings hope. So the physical manifestations of that were um, obviously people being healed from illnesses. Now you can get lost in a, in a very difficult maze when you wonder why when you see in the Bible people being healed and then you pray for your own healing for whatever your disability is. And God says no dice and makes you makes you walk with it, makes you carry it. Uh, Paul had an issue like that, the thorn in the flesh, but all of us do. We all have burdens that we would like to, to cast off, and uh, God says, no, you must carry it. So hard to figure out. Uh, you can go, go a little bit crazy in trying to figure that out, and I just suggest that you pray for healing and be persistent about it, and God can say no. That's an answer to prayer. You have to remember that yes is an answer to prayer, and so is no. Just like a parent could say no to a child if the child wants something that the parent decides is not good for the child. Uh, so don't go too crazy about that one. So we're going to continue reading on this uh, chapter here. Two more pages. So God, uh, good, the good is slow that out of love for free persons it will not use force. That in its um, wisdom towards the frail ones it shrinks from any deception. It cannot, he cannot and he will not humbly understand that the good can get on without him, that he is double-minded, he uh, that with his enthusiasm could apparently become an apostle, but can quite as readily become a Judas who treacherously wishes to hasten the victory of the good. Talk about Judas here, but I did a little bit of research because I'm familiar with the story, of course, of Judas's betrayal, one of the original 12 disciples. And the Bible uh, strongly suggests that Jesus knew way ahead of time that Judas was going to betray him for 30 pieces of silver. It's actually in the Old Testament. It's kind of a, an obscure reference, but it's used in the uh, New Testament as an example of fulfilled prophecy. So this is another thing that can kind of drive you crazy. Was Judas appointed for that role? Was he predestined to be a betrayer uh, or did he have free will? And my answer to that is I don't know. I just have gotten to a point on some of these things that you can get yourself all twisted up uh, trying to figure this out. 
And I think the Bible teaches both, not just about Judas, but about a lot of biblical characters, that they have both free will, and there's also a destiny that God has appointed for them. Uh, Paul was converted by being knocked off his horse and was blinded. That's a pretty strong conversion where Jesus comes to him uh, during that experience and tells him that he is called to be a minister and, a, and a, an apostle to the Gentiles. So that's not a that's not a that's a pretty strong arm tactic that Jesus used of knocking off uh, Saul, uh, now known as Paul, from his horse. That's not a, a gentle way of doing it, and blinding him, and then speaking to him uh, that his conversion is at hand. So you can go a bit crazy trying to figure that out. I suggest just not doing it. Just accept both and um, let God figure out the details. But Judas uh, was one of the original twelve. Um, he's called in the Bible in the New Testament uh, a thief because uh, he was stealing from the money bag. And he also, um, the money bag that the disciples used to pay for expenses. Um, and so that happened way before he betrayed Jesus. That was a pattern that he had, that he was a thieving individual. And uh, Judas was also someone who was uh, a strong, strongly hypocritical because he complained that when... Um, the woman came up to Jesus uh, towards his crucifixion, towards his death. It was a few days uh, before, a week or something like that. And she poured all this perfume, perfume out on his head and on his feet and stuff and wiped, her, wiped the um, perfume with her hair. You know, Jesus complained that they could have used that money to uh, help the poor. And Jesus knew what was in his heart. It's taken out of the money bag because Judas wanted to spend it for his own purposes. Now, Soren doesn't talk about Judas being a thief here. He talks about um, Judas being impatient, that Judas who treacherously wishes to hasten the victory of the good. I would question whether that's an accurate assessment. Now, Judas had an idea of what the good is. It's uh, Jesus um, dishing out some whoop-ass to his enemies, you know, and the disciples being part of the part of his posse doing it. Like, we're going to bring judgment upon uh, Upon, upon Rome, I think that would have been how Judas would have seen this, is that it's time to dish out some uh, whoop-ass on the Romans. And uh, you're not going to be part of the posse here that's going to be doing it. So I think there was that part of Judas that wanted to hasten you know, the coming of the kingdom, not in the way that uh, Jesus was talking about, but the way he wanted to do it, which is through some whoop-ass. And, uh, but he was also a thief, so I think he had a combination of some very bad characteristics. And whenever sin starts to develop uh, different aspects, like it's a different um, area of sinfulness, uh, then the person is going to be wrestled by the devil into compliance and into serving him. Because um, Judas was rash. He was ambitious. Um, he wanted to uh, impose uh, a righteousness that was based on the flesh and what he thought was good. So Soren is correct about that. But he was also, also very selfish, and he was a thief. Now, a person can be uh, selfish without being a thief, but um, Judas was uh, a thief. He would steal from the money bag. Uh, so I can't figure out whether Judas was appointed for this role or whether he chose the role and how those two things interact. So my counsel to you on these things is just don't worry about it because you're not going to solve the, uh, not going to solve the complexity of that. Some things belong to God and that's where it belongs and that's where I'm going to keep it. So I used to get more worked up about stuff like the apocalypse when I was a kid or some of the old Testament stories that I found hard to believe or, um, like Noah's Ark always puzzled me. It seemed like a, a quite an overreaction and quite catastrophic for what, 
um, what happened and, and pretty unrealistic in terms of marching the animals on a boat and all that. I didn't, I didn't understand it, but Jesus believed it. Um, I don't have any problem with miracles as a rule, but certain stories definitely, uh, kind of push the credulity of it all. And I believe it now, uh, but I also don't worry about it. I don't try to make sense of it. I don't try I think through it to a degree and then I just let it be. So Judas was scandalized by its poverty, by the poverty of the, of the apostles and by Jesus specifically. So Judas, who treacherously wishes to hasten the victory of the good, he is scandalized. <clears throat> he, by his enthusiasm, seems to love the good so highly. He is scandalized by its poverty when it is closed in the slowness of time. He is not devoted to the good and service that he may profit nothing. He only effervesces. I'm really proud of myself that I nailed that effervesces. And that... Then he that effervesces loves the moment, and he that loves the moment fears time. He fears that the course of time will reveal his double-mindedness, and he falsifies his eternity, for otherwise eternity might still more effectively reveal his double-mindedness. He is a falsifier. For him, eternity is the deceptive sensory illusion of the horizon. For him, eternity is the bluish haze that limits time. For him, eternity is the dazzling slate of hand trick executed for the moment and by the moment. Uh, such a double-minded person is perhaps hardly recognizable in this world because his double-mindedness is not evident inside the world. The world's reward and punishment do not serve as informers against him, for he has overcome the world, even if by a higher deception. Hence, his double-mindedness is first recognizable at the boundary where time and eternity touch upon each other. There is a clear... There it is clear, and is always recognized by all, by the all-knowing one. He will not be content with the blessed assurance, which comforts beyond all measure, that eternally the good has always been victorious. The blessed, blessed assurance, which is a security that passes all understanding, uh, that's from the scriptures, uh, that passes all understanding, the blessed assurance that the unprofitable servant may have within himself at each moment, even when the time is the longest, and he seems to accomplish the least of all the blessed assurance which allows the unprofitable servant, if he loses honor, to speak more proudly than that royal word. All is lost save honor, and when even honor is lost, to say nothing is lost but all is gained. And again, we uh, talked about how Soren wrote all these books, and the audience was fairly small. He broke even for a while, but in the end he dies broke, and... All those piles of book looked like they were just futility, a Sisyphus-like rolling of words up a hill, only to roll down and just to pile like rubble in a bookshelf. It looked that way at the end of Soren's life, that everything had come to a, gate, a great ruination. So Soren himself is providing hope that he shall come again, that his words shall live. And here we are, 2022. Uh, October 2022, going into Sorns. And um, recently, the numbers of the podcast have been going up, so other people feel that way too. I am a but a humble servant trying to uh, convey Sorns' wisdom to the 21st century crowd that certainly needs the guidance he provides. But this double-minded person is not so easily recognizable on earth. He does not will the good for the sake of the reward, for then he would have become obvious in his aspiration or in his despair. He does not will the good out of a fear of punishment, for then he would uh, have become obvious in his cowardice, in his shunning of punishment, or in his despair, 
when he was not able to avoid it. No, he wishes to sacrifice all. Uh, he fears nothing, only uh, will not sacrifice himself in daily self-forgetfulness. This he fears to do. So this is the egocentric wanting for the good to triumph through him. And we had used Regina as an example of one who blessed him with no reward. Uh, she did it because it was the right thing for her to do as she was leaving Denmark forever. She came up to Soren and said goodbye and blessed him. And that was a true, uh, a true... Uh, a true benediction of humility and holiness and hope for Soren that she did not hold against him the breaking of the, um, of the engagement. I guess she did in a way, but she was also willing to forgive. And if you've ever been in that situation where you had aspirations of being married to someone and then that individual changes their mind, um, it's got to be a, probably the most hurtful thing a person could go through. I, and door, divorce isn't great. But this is a person who has got your hopes up before the reality of the marriage would actually settle in, which would tend to even things out a bit. You wouldn't be quite so idealistic. If somebody breaks off the engagement, that, that's going to be a very, very bitter pill to swallow. And that regime could be compassionate towards uh, Soren as an example of that she was a uh, truly a saint. Uh, despite her struggles internally, that may have may have occurred. I'm sure, sure they did. I'm sure that when she did that, I think it was 11 years later after the broken engagement that she came up to him. That may have been a hard thing for her to do, uh, but she did it. And it's an example of uh, willing the good without any fear of punishment or the good triumphing through her or for reward. The double-minded man stands at a parting of ways and sees uh, these two apparitions, the good and the good in its victory, or even in its victory through him. This latter is presumptuous, but even the first two apparitions are not wholly the same. In eternity, they are the same, but not in time, and they must be kept apart. Good, the good so wills that the good puts on the slowness of time as a poor garment, and in keeping with uh, this change of dress, one who serves it must be clothed, clothed in the insignificant figure of the unprofitable servant. And the unprofitable servant comes from the Bible too. You would read that in one of Jesus' parables. Um, and it, you can't be judged necessarily only by the results of your ministry. I think there's a lot of people that would be classified as failures if that was the case, at least in their lifetime. Uh, God has a way of uh, prospering a person's work after they're gone in ways that the world does not recognize. Uh, with the eyes of his senses, he is not permitted to see the good in victory. Only with the eye of faith can he strive after its eternal victory. Therein lies his double-mindedness, for as there is a double-mindedness double -mindedness which divides up the nature of the good which the good has united for all eternity, so his double-mindedness of that sort that unites what the good is in time has set apart. The double-minded person forgets the eternal and on that account misuses time. The other misuses eternity. So Soren talks about this idea of, of self-forgetfulness and reminded me of a C.S. Lewis quote that... Um, do not think less of yourself, but think of yourself less. And let me repeat that because I think it's a, it's a little bit of a nuanced type of quote with the principle to think about. Do not think, uh, think less of yourself, like self-esteem. Do not think less of yourself, uh, but think of yourself less. That's true biblical. That latter, think of yourself less, is truly the biblical goal is to think of yourself less. And I can say from working uh, with kids and students for 34 years, 
if I didn't focus on helping the students and the kids and I focused instead on, my, on myself or my problems or the clock or the troubles of the job, if I had lost that primary mission of caring about the kids and trying to do my best, even though it was flawed, of course, and there's times I regret things I did, I don't think I acted in malice a lot. I tried to do what I thought was best with my conscience and, and as a guide. But that's what I needed to focus in on, on serving the students and the parents and the other staff members of that community. Anytime I became selfish or focused too much on myself or on the clock and when I'm going to get out of here, uh, things really, really became painful. It's only when I lost myself in the midst of the work where I just was doing it. I didn't think about it. I wasn't hectic about it, but I was continuously applied my hand to the plow that's when that's when time flew and that's when that's why the 34 years seemed like it went like a, a blink of an eye is i didn't look at the clock much every so often i would get stuck and look at the clock and that was a painful time because the uh this the clock hands don't move quickly when they're watched um so think about yourself less uh do good and don't worry about the reward don't worry about the fear of punishment and also, don't give yourself a pat on the back uh, too much about the work that you did and rest in your laurels. Keep on serving. Uh, there'll be a time to get your reward. God will. God has promised that he will reward the good that we've done in this life in eternity and punish the bad for sure. So anyway, we're come up to, uh, coming up to the end of the podcast here. Just a few things just to catch you up on the, uh, on the personal side. We talked about last week of about cutting your losses and used that Marcus Aurelius quote about um, you know if the if the fruit is bitter just toss it out and if there's a bramble in the way just to walk around it. So this idea of cutting your losses sometimes investing in a losing cause just causes more loss. So it's better just to say enough of the uh, enough of this. I'm just going to stop. So take you know take your loss and move on. And I used the example of uh, the hotel room I was staying up at. In the Allegheny National Forest, where it was inhospitable because of a person being very ill in the room next to me, keeping me up all night by coughing vociferously. And I didn't blame the person necessarily. I didn't even blame the hotel owner entirely. I didn't cause a scene at 1 o'clock in the morning when I couldn't sleep. I just got up and left. And I thought that was a good Christian response. You know, like, I'm not going to cause a scene here. I'm not going to be entitled. I'm going to admit this isn't working. And I'm going to take the loss. I'm going to swallow the... Uh, the price of the hotel room for not just tonight, but tomorrow night, I'm just going to leave. <laughs> and I'm just going to cut the losses. And the same thing with my roof rack on my new Honda CRV. There were some new parts that I had bought with the kayak attachments and the bike attachments that weren't working properly. So I used some of my old parts, which were actually more functional and more new than the new parts that Honda had not had updated by Thule, which is a provider of roof racks and kayak and bike attachments so being willing to look at what was good in the old and use the new and put them together and not use the new just because they were new uh, they were new in, in purchase but old in design if that makes sense so the opposite can also be true where we don't cut our losses where we continue to reinvest in something that doesn't appear to be working now this is where wisdom comes in because it's very very hard to come up with a checklist or I suppose you could, but it would have to be a nuanced checklist. Um, and I'm going to use an example here. When I retired, the fellow counselors of the school district gave me an Amazon gift card of like $300 or something. It was really nice, and I appreciated it. And um, I went out and bought a Garmin Instinct watch, which is one of these smart watches. Now, it's a little bit limited in its technology. It's not quite as good as like an Apple, um, an Apple iWatch. And if I had to do it again, I would probably bought the Ultra 
Apple iWatch. It's about $1,000, and then I would also, um, you know, set it up for cell phone service just in case I needed to use it when, my, um, when I couldn't have access to my cell phone inside my pocket or inside of a, a pocket or something like that. Because uh, I do some things alone, like mountain biking and kayaking, where I, you know, I, I can't have the buddy system because someone's not with me. I have a very open schedule. A lot of people I hang out with have relatively open schedules because we could do stuff during the day, but not they're not as available as me. I'm retired. I don't. I'm not working. <laughs> um, so if I'm going to mountain bike and if I wipe out, I may just sit in the woods for quite some time if I don't have a way of getting like 911 emergency personnel to my location because I've broken my leg or something. So I've been struggling to find a way to combine the ability to communicate uh, to third parties when needed to, but also to use the smartwatch to do things like metrics of um, like how many calories am I burning? What's the route? Have the GPS function in case I need to find my way back from a location and also protect my cell phone because ultimately this uh, Garmin Instinct doesn't make phone calls. So I solved the problem by watching a lot of videos on this Garmin Instinct. I just kept watching videos to figure out how it worked because uh, for about a year and a half, I just kept it in a box and I couldn't figure out how it worked. It was very frustrating because it's not like an iPhone. It's not very intuitive, but I just forced myself for a Saturday just to watch probably 15 videos of varying lengths just to understand how the watch works. So I finally understand how the work, watch works. And then I'm going to put my iPhone inside of, uh, it's already inside of a protective uh you know, protect, protective uh, um, cover. But then I bought an Otter box, which is a box that locks it in too. It's, so it's a, it, the, the phone's already inside of a, a holder of sorts. And now I'm putting inside an Otter box that is kind of crash proof. So if I'm out on the trail and I wipe out, as long as I'm not unconscious, I can get to my phone. I can give them the coordinates of what my location is based on my Garmin Instinct. Um, and also I can call 911, which also reports my, uh, my location to um, the emergency personnel. So this is a case of sticking with something uh, versus throwing it out because I was just not confident I could learn how the watch works or hadn't thought through it enough. It would have been easy for me just to like not use the watch and go out and buy the iPhone Ultra and spend $1,000. So I think I have a solution to the problem. So sometimes you're called to work through things and not avoid things and it takes wisdom and experience and counsel and watching videos and reading articles to figure out is this something I could win at eventually or is this just a losing cause so in that case I think I I, I found a solution that's imperfect but at least uh, take care of my major concerns about being left alone in the uh, in the woods if I wipe out and break my leg and can't get back to my location and I have to call somebody to get help and all that stuff so it's a cool thing. I'm glad I have the watch. I'm glad that I found a solution to this problem. So it takes wisdom. And one thing I find that really, really helps when I'm trying to make a decision that's not necessarily impossible, but the solution is not immediately apparent, is to actually make a list. Make a list of um, all the issues at hand. Try to understand your situation clearly to start with, because you're not going to find an answer unless you first understand the situation. And then sequentially work through the steps of like okay so what does this do why why is this a problem how do i solve that problem and rather than just throwing money at something how do how can i solve this problem with the resources i have right now and figure it out and then you may get to a point where you realize it's just a losing cause and then you bail out or you decide to persist through it and figure it out so i'll leave it at that today hopefully that's a bit helpful and if you don't like these little rambles at the end just cut them off and move on from there after i get done talking about Soren. So we are officially done. 
uh, that chapter, uh, which I'm pretty excited about. It's good to be done because uh, that was a hard chapter for me to read because it really spoke to me in terms of willing, wanting the good to, uh, to triumph through me. Uh, there's other, obviously, other chapters coming, so we will see you down the road. Have a good week. Talk to you soon.